Well, 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 hope you guys are doing well. It's the Stephbot from the Free Domain. How is your Saturday going? How is your life going? I have thoughts, as always, they crowd me. Like chickens around one spilt corn in a hungry landscape, but I am always, always over von joyed to hear from you, my lovely friends and listeners. So if you have something that's on your mind, on a yearning burning, other than, hey, I'm going to be 55. I actually just paused updates on Windows because I can't take the stress anymore. I uh, just paused update on Windows and it said, oh, by the way, you will be able to resume your updates when you're old. It really knows these messages. Very, very specific. Very, very specific. So, yeah, how are you guys doing? How's life? If you have anything that's on your mind, you can just click a raisey raise hand, and I would be more than happy to run it through the philosophy matrix <laughs> or something like that. Are you looking forward to the new Matrix movie? Oh, they got progressively more disappointing, didn't they? You know, there's almost nothing better than at the very beginning of things, before you know anything's going to be successful and you work like hell. And then after the success of the first Matrix movies, man, you know what happens. Everything just falls to crap because too many people get involved. And it's, yeah, of course, once you're successful out of nowhere, the leftists say, oh, my gosh, there's a franchise. We have to be able to push leftism. We have to be able to push diversity. We have to be able to push egalitarianism. And they just swarm in on you. Of course, that's one of the reasons I got deplatformed was I simply couldn't be uh, taken over. I couldn't be taken over. And so naturally, because I couldn't be taken over, I had to be gone. Gone, baby, gone. All right. But no, let me not ramble. Well, I will. But either way, if you have something that you would like to ask or a conversation that you would like to have, a criticism that you would like to share, I, of course, am always happy. And let me just see. I will just throw a couple of other places out there. And oh, no, copy listener link. There we go. That's what we're looking for. So, yeah, because I've uh, been really mulling over this. Fascism is hypermasculinity and communism is hyperfemininity. And uh, I really find that fascinating. And uh, I, I hope you find it interesting, too. I can certainly ramble on that, but that could as well be a solo show. I'm happy to chat with you guys, of course, if you have something on your mind. Let me just share this invite li link, a place or two. And uh, we'll uh, we'll take it from there. Oh, you want to load? <clears throat> Everything is slow. Do you ever have those days? Every computer, every computer you touch just turns to molasses. It's rough, man. It's rough. All right, let's go in here. All I can say is that my life is pretty plain. I like watching the puddles gather rain. There we go. Join me in the debauchery. All right, let me just check here. If anybody wants to talk. All right, going once, going twice. You got to click a raise hand thing if you want to. And um, yeah, I have a guy who. Oh, okay. All right, let's uh, let's wait for that. Uh, Jacob, you have made it to the top of the list. How are you doing, my friend? 
doing well. How are you this evening or afternoon? I'm well. I'm well, thank you. So, I uh, wasn't really sure what to talk about, but you were uh, looking for people to come up, so I figured I'd raise my hand. Now, you run a show, right? I do. Uh, so, what are you doing to me? What are you doing? You jump in the queue with nothing to say? <laughs> hey, I mean, don't, I'm not desperate. I've got stuff to talk about. I just want to make sure I'm being polite. If you don't have anything on your mind, that's no problem, but let's not waste time if you don't. Well... I actually do have a question. I was kind of curious uh, what your thoughts were, um, specifically about libertarianism. And uh, so I guess, do you view libertarianism as a viable option to this two-party system that America um, is pretty much stuck with? Is it something that could help, or is it kind of a waste of time? So it depends what you mean by viable. I also want to I'll, I'll always want to make sure we're talking about the same thing. So tell me what you mean by a viable option. And I'm not skeptical that it is or isn't. I just want to know what you mean by the word. Is it is it a option for people to pursue to be a alternative? To the two-party system, uh, is, is that clear enough? Uh, alternative. So, are you saying? Do you? Uh, it's the question: Can libertarian political action solve problems in politics? Yes. And what would your definition of solving those problems in politics be? What would that look like? How would you know if you had achieved it? Increasing individual liberty. When was the last time that individual liberty in America was increased? Ooh, good question. Um, well, and I, I'm not counting tax cuts because, yeah. you know, they crank up the tax 10%, they lower it 5%, and everyone feels like they're in uh, Galt's Gulch. So I'm talking about like when was a, a fr freedom in America for individuals enhanced or expanded? So I guess it would kind of depend on exactly what we would be talking about. Uh, specifically in my state, we now are constitutional carry as far as uh, firearms go. So we do not have to have a state mandated identification that allows us to be able to carry a concealed carry weapon. Um, I would consider that... Uh, a move towards more liberty versus less. Yeah, I would certainly agree with that. Um, that, of course, was the original liberty, though. It was taken away and then returned to you, right? Exactly. So I. Okay, so that's like that's said, a recovering I, of liberty. That's an expansion of liberty. Yes, I I agree. So I I guess that's more of my question is that if libertarian political action is a um, useful tool to at least even gain back our uh, our liberties that we should have in the first place. Well, I mean, you you gave. I assume that this was was this a libertarian initiative? This uh, idea of uh, uh, recovering the the right to bear arms. 
Yes, initially it was. Um, there were, of course, other uh, groups that joined in, but I believe it was the Libertarian Party that put it uh, forth and were really the driving force behind it. I mean, that seems like some success in the recovering of uh, in the recovery of liberties. Can you think of any others? Um, well, I can only speak at least from my state. Um, so we have definitely put forth some um, campaigns to prevent uh, like hate speech laws. Um, so I, I think that that's another one that would come directly to mind. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I know that the in the U.S. the uh, Supreme Court has decided that there isn't any such thing as hate speech, and of course, I mean, everyone hates some form of speech or another. To me, communism is hate speech. But uh, well, what can you do? <laughs> I guess what you what you guys do is push back against those kinds of laws. So I, I think that libertarianism can be very helpful in reversing some stripping of liberties, and it also can be helpful in slowing things down. Right. It matters to me that we've not hit full communist dictatorship yet. And some of that has to do with activism on the part of, of the Libertarian Party. Right. I, I would agree. So um, we so I just recently became involved with uh, the, the party officially. It's not the only solution I see, but it, it seems to still be a, a great tool, like you said, for activism. And if there's anything I can do to help, uh, I guess, keep the red menace at bay, definitely seems like a, uh, an option I would like to take, especially if they are promoting peaceful solutions versus some of these uh, far left or far right groups that... Uh, you mean like the militias and stuff? Um, no, specifically as far as the far right, I would say like the Boogaloo Boys which are kind of uh, like acceleration, accelerationist, um, trying to say, well, let's just collapse the system, much kind of like Antifa. Right, okay, and and you, of course, would you want to keep keep the system as best you can, right? Um, uh, that's actually something I've been trying to work out uh, philosophically for myself. Uh, I wouldn't really consider myself a conservative because the current system, at least the way that I see it, is there's not much of it that I would like to conserve. Uh, more of a uh, American culture, I guess, is what I would want to conserve, the Western culture. And what do you view as the uh, primary elements of that culture? I would have to say um, probably a lot of uh, Christian philosophy, um, love thy neighbor, um, thou shall not steal, um, trying to come up with these off, off the top of my head. I'm not particularly religious. Well, individualism, um, reason, um, and, and um, ma maximum liberty, property rights, and uh, freedom from coercion. Uh, and, and minimal or limited state it's, it's that kind of stuff right free speech yeah correct correct the 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 things that make western civilization the best right okay okay now 
what's your ideal society? An ideal society, um, I guess it would be, well, the ability to choose in which way to, to, to live your life uh, without the threat of force or fraud. Is that um, minarchism or a truly voluntary society, like all the way to anarcho-capitalism? I consider myself an anarcho-capitalist, so I, I would like to see no government. Um, I, I believe all government to be force and therefore immoral. So I, I believe, uh, I, I think it was Plato that said that good people don't need laws to tell them how to act responsible. and bad people will find a way around them. Right, right. Yeah, and it's because the last great moral advance was the end of slavery. And of course, the end of slavery was because a whole bunch of Christians and a lot of Quakers and Protestants and a whole bunch of Christians ended up using the power of the state to end slavery. I mean, ending slavery in within a country is pretty easy. You just stop enforcing slave contracts, right? <laughs> and you're done. Pretty, pretty easy, right? Just Stop enforcing your slave contracts, and right because the slavery was something that was subsidized by the state enforcing enforcement of the contracts. You can't keep people locked up if they just want to be free, and no one's going to go chase them down and bring them back for you. And to, but to end slavery, obviously they stopped enforcing slave contracts within America and and within England. But then to end slavery around the world, they used the power of the state, right? They used the power, particularly the British Navy and Army, to. Uh, to interfere with and end the, the slave carriers. So, I mean, there's sort of two levels to getting free. One is just stop enforcing bad contracts like slavery, evil and immoral contracts. And the other is use the power of the state to smash those contracts elsewhere. I think we're all kind of keen on the one uh, to stop enforcing immoral contracts. But of course, anarcho-capitalists can't seize control of the state to end the state, right? It's just one of these paradoxes. You can't, um, you, you can't do it. So... Now, how long would you say it's been since America has been relatively close to the state that you would consider ideal? I'm honestly not sure if we have actually ever been there. Um, I, I believe there have definitely been times where there were less government coercion um, and force used against the citizens, but I, I'm not sure if we've actually ever been too close to that society uh, in general, at, le at least ideally. Yeah, it's funny too, because we think of America as, you know, like a blob with a government all the way from its beginning. But of course, the reality is that for a significant majority of Americans, there was really no functional state for good chunks of American history. I mean, they talk about the Wild West, like that's just a big bunch of government propaganda. The West was extraordinarily peaceful. Of course, the criminals gravitate to the cities, not to the farms. And so for, in terms of sort of spontaneous self-organization and dealing with criminality and dealing with contract violations and so on, you had ostracism, you had, I mean, even pirates, there's actually a famous book by an economic historian on how pirates would deal because they can't enforce their contracts in a court of law because they're criminals, right? And how pirates would deal with the divvying up of goods and, and responsibility for work and the maintenance of contracts. They're very complex systems for resolving contractual disputes that spontaneously arose in the absence of the state, or in this case, in the opposition, from the opposition to the state. 
and so there were and and there were significant patches of uh, the uh, the government that just didn't really apply to to a lot of places in in history and i would sort of argue that for all but very few the average person has no practical access to the legal system um i mean this was many many years ago um a a trader was uh, over trading on my account just sort of like trading for his own benefit rather than for my benefit and i remember talking to a lawyer and he said yeah you can take me to court it'll cost you probably i guess the modern equivalent of about seven hundred and fifty thousand dollars and it would probably take about 10 years <laughs> right and you know you can never be sure of the outcome so that that is you know no practical access uh, to to the legal system and there are very few people who can successfully use the legal system except of course if you you know have a lot of money and and you want to use it as a sort of club with which to intimidate people but the legal system is there in general to maintain the profits of lawyers and serve the oligarchs in threatening average people but it's not there and so so in a way we're sort of functioning in in the worst of all worlds in that there's not really a parallel system of dispute resolution but there's no practical access and people say oh we need the state to resolve contracts it's like have you ever tried to use the state to resolve a contract <laughs> have you ever seen how that would happen i remember there was there was a guy george schultz's grandson was one of the whistleblowers at elizabeth's home scam fest called uh, theranos right this we can do a thousand tests on a drop of blood like complete you, you put that in a Dungeons and Dragons campaign and people were like, okay, man, I can accept ghost zombie dragons, but I can't accept this makes no sense at all. But George Schultz's grandson was a whistleblower and he was heavily threatened by uh, Theranos uh, and he was dragged into court over and over again. He actually, um, he was followed, he felt, uh, by, by private investigators and he slept with a knife by his bed. He was so scared uh, of of what what might happen, and he said he wanted to get a gun and sleep with a gun by his bed. But he was so depressed and anxious facing down the legal system. When he woke up in the morning, he wasn't sure that the gun would be used to protect himself or to shoot himself. Like he was, I guess he got suicidal over the course of this. And his his father was actually on his knees begging him not to do this. I guess maybe his father had some experience with the legal system. And his parents uh, had to spend about a half a million dollars uh, on, on legal bills because they were going after him, I think, for disparaging the company or, or something like that. Now, the fact that a lot of what, if not most of what he said, turned out to be true, or at least seems to be true, it doesn't, doesn't get him his money or his, his life back or anything like that. So, um, yeah, it is, it is a funny thing that people say, well, gosh, without the state, how would we resolve these kinds of disputes? It's like, uh, you know, most people don't know no chance in the legal system and no access to the legal system. And it's uh, it's pretty rough. But people sort of forget that. Like they, they, oh, but the government has a legal system and we need that for society. It's like, well, no. I mean, you're actually preventing spontaneous and effective dispute resolutions from coming into effect. So. Sorry, that was a, a slight bit of a tangent, but it's just something to remember when you're debating these things with people that, is, oh, well, without the government, who, how would we resolve disputes? It's like, well, I'll take my chances. Thank you very much, because uh, it really doesn't. That was, I think, a defamation case up here in Canada. It took like over seven years uh, to, to resolve. And of course, the lawyers made a fortune. You can never get your reputation back in that way. But uh, yeah, it's just, uh, it's pretty pretty rough that way. So. As far as, you know, political action, um, 
I think that libertarianism is a great philosophy, and uh, it is consistent all the way to anarcho-capitalism. It is consistent with the non-aggression principle, which is wonderful. I think it's a great way to meet like like-minded people, but um, I, I think it's most value at the moment. I mean, it's it's really it's really sad. I mean, just let me just speak from my heart for for a moment, right? It's just it's really sad that the state keeps advancing, and the best that can be done is to delay or slow down. I mean, that seems to be. Ron Paul was like, "I want to end the Fed," right? And now he's like, "Well, we got to push back against vaccine passports." And you know, let's say that they were to win against vaccine passports, and it seems the only way they'll be able to do that is the same way that they push back against, other people push back against voter ID laws, which is just call them racist and see if that sticks. But, you know, when you look at someone like Ron Paul, and, and no disrespect to Ron Paul, he's a great man, but it's like, you know, he wanted to end the Fed and audit the Fed, and that was going to be, his, and now they're just like, hey, I wonder if we can hold our vaccine passports for three months. You know, that's sort of where where it's at. And so, yeah, I mean, it's great that you guys have um, the, the gun laws or the absence of gun laws, so to speak, that you have. As far as, you know, I'm, I'm, <laughs> I pulled the age card now. That's all I've got left is the creaky age card at 55. And one, one of the things that I would just say is that, you know, we are a whole lot less free than when I was a kid. We are a whole lot less free than when I was a kid. And there have, been, of course, been, and I've been one of those people for like 40 years straight pushing for uh, more freedoms and I put a lot of effort and work into it. And of course there are many, many, many others, really countless others, much like yourself who've put huge amounts of effort and energy into it. And the result uh, has been, has been what? I mean, we have the internet, but the internet is uh, why we're able to have this conversation. That's great. But you know, we, we do have to zoom out and look at the big course of things. And the last thing, of course, I mean, a systemic collapse is the second worst thing, right? A systemic collapse is the second worst thing. The worst thing is straight up North Korean style dictatorship, right? That's that's the worst thing. I mean, that's that's gulags and and uh, mass graves. And, and it, it seems that it seems like we're too far off from that, honestly. It does not seem. No, no, that's right. It does not seem that uh, we're too far off from that, and. Uh, the only, I mean, I think the only, what was it my daughter taught me? The, the portal to the nether. You build a portal in, in Minecraft and you get to this place called the nether. And she took me out there once with a bunch of listeners to to you know, fight fight the ender dragon. And so I think that the only hope for those of us who love liberty is is the stand and fight thing. I don't know, man. The stand and fight thing uh, it has, has some real risks. And those risks are getting greater and greater every day. But there are such there's such a, an immense, immensely powerful and, and talented and I dare say often wealthy group of people who are just desperate for freedom. And that is the, the great crop of humankind, the great golden tribe of the liberty lovers, right? And some place in the world, I truly believe this, some place in the world is going to figure this out. And just as America did the brain drain from Europe in the 19th century, some place is going to be like, come here and be free. Come here and be free. Now, we thought maybe that was Hong Kong for a while, but given China's growing power, that seems 
unlikely. Um, some people thought New Zealand for a while, but uh, with the socialist in charge, that seemed somewhat unlikely. Some people thought Australia, but that, of course, is com completely off the grid. As far as that goes, maybe it'll be an Eastern European country. Maybe it'll be an Eastern Asian uh, country. I know Thailand is offering some pretty long-term citizenship options. But the, the, the opportunity to compete for liberty has diminished with the global pandemic because what they're trying to do, of course, is eliminate the capacity for the livestock to break out and, and run. Right? They're looking to, to close the exit loops so that you can't go anywhere because liberty is locked down from a pandemic standpoint. This, of course, is the great horrible, horrible gift of the pandemic to the ruling classes that they can, you know, I remember, um, you know, back in the day, uh, people came to Canada for free. Um, and my wife's parents fled Greece when the communists were on the verge of taking over to get to Canada for freedom and uh, corporations all flooded to Ireland in the 90s for that kind of freedom. People have consistently come to America for that kind of freedom. And so the problem is, of course, is this this competition aspect of the elite's uh, plan, right? Like, uh, let's, let's remove the ability to compete with uh, people, uh, well, compete for people, I suppose. So yeah, uh, it, the, um, the pipeline to freedom, the underground railroad of places you can go. I, I, I do still think some place is gonna figure it out. Some place, some place in the world is gonna figure out that if you offer um, a refuge to the people most desperate for freedom, you will become a very wealthy and, and happy and positive society. And that, I think, is, is the big, it's the big hope. It may be a slim hope, but again, people are pretty smart. The tax farmers are pretty smart, and figuring out this approach, I think, would be, uh, would be the most ideal. And then it's just a matter of waiting out what happens with the rest of the countries and see. But, you know, it's, it's, a, it's a pretty desperate situation, as you know. I mean, the world debt is absolutely monstrous and people think of debt as an abstract thing but debt is literally life debt is literally life you know when there's a big giant welfare state and money is being pumped into various sectors of society people just they have kids they don't need to get married they just have a bunch of kids and and make their money from the welfare state and so the debt that goes into paying for the welfare state has literally created billions of lives billions of lives are dependent upon the continuation of a debt which cannot be continued this is why debt is so cruel debt is so brutal and debt as a mechanism for buying votes is so appalling because it literally will create lives that can't possibly be sustained as the debt begins to collapse and i mean this is well known throughout history and of course throughout history what countries do when they have taken on financial obligations they can't possibly fulfill, they just go to war. The debt is used to create life, and then the wars are used to eliminate the life. And, um, you know, where, how that sits in, in the world history at the moment, I think it's pretty, it's pretty obvious. So, yeah, we, we are uh, heading to a, a pretty rough pass, and... You know, the main issue, I think, with libertarians is, is it's always trying to deal with the effects rather than the causes. The cause of the world's ills is government education. The fact that you have a single pain point by which to inflict rancid ideologies 
upon all of the citizens. I mean, with the exception of a couple of homeschooled kids and all that. But that is, I think, the major and main issue. Now, America died in the 1860s and the West as a whole. You know, it's it's been a dead cat bounce ever since. As soon as governments took over education, then there was no possibility that liberty could be sustained. It's a, a, a single and central place or point at which you can control the thoughts of hundreds of millions of people, um, maybe a billion people at this point. That is so much power. And no human being can productively handle that kind of power. And so once the governments gained control over the minds and thoughts of children, I mean, there's no way that that is not going to draw the most deranged and controlling freaks in society to take that over. And that really is the major issue. Of course, kids aren't taught how to think. You know, it's, I mean, and you never, you never hear it discussed. It's really a remarkable thing. You never hear it discussed. I mean, have you ever read, and like the mainstream media is really up in arms about the anti-vaxxers, right? Have you ever once heard anyone in the mainstream media say, well, wait a minute, like close to half of Americans are really skeptical of the vaccine. And according to the mainstream media, the vaccines are safe and effective and scientific, right? So has any of them ever said, you know, when half of people reject clear and obvious science by their perspective, Man, do we ever have to look at the educational system. We have got to figure out what has gone so catastrophically wrong with our educational system that half the population is anti-science. They won't, like it's, it's like they want the control and power to shape the thoughts of their citizens from the age of, you know, four or five onwards. But then when anything goes wrong in society, they never ever trace it back to that educational system. <laughs> it's like they want the power to control your thinking, but if half the population thinks badly, as they say, well, that's just the fault of, of the population. They're just crazy. They're just dumb. They're just like, it's like, no, no, no. You guys were able to educate these people for 12 years straight. If there's anything wrong with the way that, I mean, logically, right? If there's anything wrong with the way that people think in a mass way, you have to look at the educational system, but of course, I mean, they'll never, uh, never do that because to criticize the educational system is to criticize the very mechanism that gives them the most power. And in higher education, it's even worse because higher education is the gateway to the upper, the middle and upper middle class. You, you don't have a degree, and, and this is still pretty, pretty true. If you don't have a degree, it's pretty hard to get into the uh, upper middle class, and that's where people want to be. And once governments control higher education, as they do even in America, then you simply have to jump through all the hoops to get to the middle class. And the hoops are diversity, inclusion, equity, socialism, <laughs> like, I mean, egalitarianism, collectivism. Those are, you just have to mouth all the platitudes and the gatekeepers won't let you through. If you don't, I just managed to squeak through. And even then, I ended up becoming an entrepreneur, which is where I found my real success uh, early in life. And of course, it's interesting to me that my first real success as a software entrepreneur was based upon stuff I never learned in school, computer programming, <laughs> or even the business. I didn't take business. I didn't take computer programming. I didn't take marketing. I didn't take sales. 
Yet I did all of these things. Didn't take any management classes, took all of it, did all of these things just by reading and thinking things through. And I think having some natural ability. So you're forever going to be playing whack-a-mole with the effects of the educational system. And of course, it seems to me functionally impossible that the government would ever give up control of the educational system. It serves so many powerful purposes. I mean, even down to the, you know, I've got these, <laughs> I've got these ducks and my daughter has these ducks, right? And they've bonded with us. So they'll follow us everywhere. We got, watching that bonding mechanism is really interesting. It's really interesting. It's actually, it's very easy to project that as, oh, they like us. <laughs> They're affectionate. They love us. Now, of course, we're very nice to the ducks and my daughter will cuddle them and, and stroke them and feed them. And so on. I'm sure that there's some positive feelings. It's not really love in the sort of abstract virtuous sense. But of course, for the government, when you put your kids in government schools, those kids bond like the ducks with us. They bond with the government. The government raises them and we are trained and evolved as a species to bond with whoever raises us. That's how culture gets transmitted and all of that. So I think with libertarianism, you're just going to be always trying to solve the problems caused by 12 years of indoctrination. I said this on a speech at Night for Freedom some years ago. They're making crazy people way faster than we can fix them. I remember the scene for a MASH, the sitcom from many years ago where there was some new weapon that burned skin on contact and the doctors had to try and fix people. And one of the older doctors just got enraged. Like they keep coming out with horrible new weapons faster than we can come up with cures for them. And that's kind of, I think that's kind of where we are. There's this conveyor belt, like society, as you know, is not static. There's just a conveyor belt of indoctrinated state sucking brain zombies coming off the educational conveyor belt. And, you know, it's like the catcher in the rye. You catch the kids going to the cliff edge and you can't, you can't fix them. You can't fix them. You can't fix it. And all, all we can offer them, those of us who think clearly, we can offer them a lot of pain, a lot of isolation, a lot of exclusion, a lot of women who won't date them, a few men who won't, who won't date them. We can't offer them a middle class. We can't offer them wealth. We can't offer them community. We can't offer them security. It's just, would you like to suffer? for something you will almost never see achieved or you're very unlikely to see achieved. You, you can achieve it in your personal life, but as far as politics go. So I think for me, yeah, I mean, uh, political action is great. I, I would view it as a much better, it's great to get a community. It's great to meet like-minded people, which I think we're going to need. We're going to need community. But as far as being able to fix you know, that the statism is a state of mind. The state is a state of mind. It's something that's perceived to be necessary. Why is it perceived to be necessary? Because when your children put you in a government school, that is such a tacit approval of the government that you can't ever really turn back on it. Can you really criticize the government, which would be to criticize your parents, right? Because if your parents put you in government school, then your parents obviously think the government is a great and wonderful entity which can educate you in virtue and wisdom, truth, facts, and so on, right? So to criticize the state becomes to criticize your parents. Now, to criticize your parents is something that very, very few people have the hardiness to. It's one of the reasons why culture is both so stable and so decaying so often is that the criticism of the parents is very, very hard. We're not programmed for that. We're programmed for quite the opposite, which is to mimic and uh, to ape our parents, to imitate our parents. So I think that... 
you can find people who just are predisposed to liberty and have survived through gritted teeth the educational catastrophes that characterize the current system. But that conveyor belt, you know, there's just way like the, the 10,000 people a day, uh, a million people a day, I guess, a million uh, at certain points of the year, just, just come and flow in off that thing. And then they flow into the next thing, which is the government schools. And if you start to question anything, you get kicked out of school. If you start to question anything, you get kicked out of university. And you have debt. And people won't hire you. And maybe you don't know how to become an entrepreneur or nothing's happening for you that way. So, and then the last thing I'll sort of mention is that, of course, people, whether they're right or they're wrong, is somewhat irrelevant. But people, millions and millions and millions, hundreds of millions of people around the West, genuinely and deeply hold the conviction that if the government stops stealing, they die. If the government stops stealing, they die. Now, we could argue this, we will find a way to adapt it, but it's sort of irrelevant because that's their foundational belief. And they wouldn't be willing to risk it, right? <laughs> they wouldn't be willing to risk it, right? I mean, if, if you were standing, you know, 20 feet off a cliff and you wanted to jump into what looked like an icy lake or jump and you'd, you'd, you'd kill yourself on that icy lake or whatever. And somebody says, oh, no, 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 the ice is like it's very thin. It's just a big bunch of snow off top and you, it's going to be really cool and refreshing. Just would you be willing to risk it? I wouldn't. I would maybe climb if I really wanted to do it. I'd climb down and poke around on the ice or whatever, but I wouldn't just jump on, on somebody's say so that I was going to be fine. And, you know, we think of... Um, the, the, the sort of prototypical example of the woman who has, uh, you know, three kids by three different men and she's uh, overweight uh, and has a very unpleasant attitude because she doesn't actually have any voluntary customers like a husband or a boyfriend that she needs to satisfy or please in the same way that you could, you could be really surly at the Department of Motor Vehicles because they don't need to serve you in a voluntary environment. There's no competition, right? So she's, you know, uh, unattractive, uh, unpleasant, comes with three um, probably very badly behaved children, and she lives on the welfare state, and her kids get health care from the government, and they get a school, and so she makes uh, probably, uh, she would need to earn well over $100,000 a year just to break even. She's probably not super smart, not motivated, and she has an entire social circle of people who've made similarly catastrophic life choices. And you're going to say to her, well, thou shalt not steal is really important. Now, what's she going to say? What are my kids going to eat? How are my kids going to get health care? Oh, you're just, going to, you're just going to watch them starve, are you? Just going to watch them die. They get sick, and they're just going to die. Now, she genuinely, passionately, deeply believes that. And she's, <laughs> wait, wait, is she going to, she going to roll the dice? Are you going to say, well, no, but look, you'll, you will be happier. You will be happier because there's no such thing as quality without voluntary. Voluntarism and quality are exactly the same thing. Whatever you're compelled to do, whatever you're compelled to choose is crap by definition, by definition. And yes, it's going to be a rough transition, but you'll be happier. You'll be better. You'll your kids will respect you more. You'll have a job. You'll feel more productive. Your self-esteem will go up. You might even get a man who want to stick with you and, and you won't, you know, you'll be a better person because you won't just get to scream at him. 
and, and abuse him, knowing that if he walks off, the welfare state is going to take care of you. So you'll actually be limited in your capacity for negative behavior by the need for resources that you can't get at the point of a voting gun. And we can say all of this to her, but she doesn't care. She doesn't care. And if you were to try and move forward with something like that, uh, she would send her teenage sons out to wreck the neighborhood. And um, that would be pretty bad. <laughs> be pretty bad, right? And then yeah, this is what I said about the Ron Paul thing many years ago. Like, oh, let's say he ends the welfare state. Okay, well, then he, he tries to end the welfare state. And there's riots all over the place, like bloody riots all over the place. And then what's he going to do? Going to call in the National Guard and suppress them? And then the entire, ah, this is what happens when you get libertarianism. You get blood in the streets and there's police dogs on the protesters. And right, and libertarianism then looks like complete fascism and is discredited for another five generations. So can you get people to act against their own self-interest? For life itself, their own self-interest, their own survivability for the sake of an abstract principle. Well, if you want to be a libertarian, you have to believe that people will put principle above discomfort. Principle above discomfort. Now, it was about 12 years ago, 11 years ago, I gave a speech about this very topic. It was kind of an experiment. I guess I could reveal it now. It was kind of an experiment, right? Now, the experiment was the uh, only, only way libertarianism can survive is if people put principle way above comfort. So I introduced the against me argument. The against me argument is if somebody wants your taxes raised, like say 10% or 5% or whatever, and you say to them, so do you want me thrown in jail if I disagree with you. I don't think taxes should be raised. You want taxes to be raised. Would you be okay? Are you okay? Or do you support me being thrown in jail if I don't? If I disagree with you that taxes should be raised and live that way? Now, of course, if they want a law passed, then they do want you thrown in jail for disagreeing with them. So you want costumed armed men and women to come to my house and drag me away and lock me in a cell if I disagree with you. In other words, you want the power of the state used against me. It's not just raising taxes or, I don't know, whatever it is. You want the power of the state used against me for disagreeing with you. It's called the against me argument. Now, I personally will not be in a relationship with somebody who wants the power of the state used against me for disagreeing with them. If you think, oh, well, we should, the welfare state is how we should help the poor. It's like, well, I disagree. Am I allowed to disagree with you without you supporting the use of force against me? Am I allowed to, to functionally or practically disagree with you? Because, you know, in a personal in a personal thing, that's just called criminality, right? In, a, in your personal life. If someone comes along and says, like if somebody asks you for $10, someone on the street says, I want $10, are you allowed to disagree with them? Well, that's the difference between charity and being mugged. Somebody wants $10, are you allowed to disagree with the person who wants $10 from you? Yes, okay, well then you just say, I'm sorry, I don't want to give it to you, I don't have any money or whatever, and you just walk on. He doesn't do anything, he asks the next guy. That's voluntary, that's charity, right? But if that person says, I'm going to use force against you if you don't give me $10, that's called a mugging. You want to have sex with a woman, you say, hey, would you want to have sex? And she says, yes. Well, that's called lovemaking. It may be ill-advised, <laughs> but it's not a violation, it's not an aggression principle. 
if you want to have sex with a woman and she says no, and then you use force to compel her, that's called rape, a sexual assault, and that's deeply evil. So in our personal lives, the difference between voluntary and violent is the difference between freedom and criminality. And just because somebody hides behind the state or the voting or propaganda or whatever doesn't change the fundamental thing that if somebody wants you to obey the state, then they want you to be brutalized violently for disagreeing with them. They think the welfare state should handle poverty. I think the charity and entrepreneurship should handle poverty. I did a lot more good for the poor by creating 60 or 70 jobs over my tenure as an entrepreneur than I ever did by paying taxes. So I put this forward. And this was an experiment. So the only way libertarians can inspire others is if they lift those principles themselves first. Lecturing people about principles you don't want to take on yourself is worse than useless. It actually discredits those principles. I mean, you know, like if you're somebody who says, you know, diet and exercise are the most important things in the world, and you're a fat layabout <laughs> with the muscle tone of your average piece of ripened feta cheese, well, then you're clearly not going to be very effective at motivating people to adopt your mantra that diet and exercise are the most important things in the world. Or, you know, Kevin Samuels, the guy on YouTube, is a very, very smart guy, very good uh, debater. He's a personal image consultant. Now, if he showed up in like, you know, ratty shorts, unshaven, you know, whatever it is, like uh, some Mickey Mouse T-shirt, then that would be a particular image. No, but he, the pictures he has of, you know, him looking smart in three-piece suit and, and looking at a phone and his hair perfectly cut like some laser from space. And right. So he's a personal image consultant. So he's got to look good. So if you have values that you want the world to adopt, you must first live them yourself. And I don't have any values that I have proposed in this show. Not one value have I ever proposed in the show that I have not first implemented in my own life. When I talk about the voluntary family. I implemented that before I ever became a public figure in my own life. Peaceful parenting implemented it in my own life. Non-aggression principle implemented it in my own life. The against me argument implemented it in my own life. I simply will not be in a relationship with somebody who wants to use force against me for disagreeing with him or with her. I simply won't do it. Because that's called putting principle above comfort. Is it, com is it comfortable to have those conversations with people and point out to them that they want force used against you for disagreeing with them? That they're kind of like, you know, propaganda sociopaths, right? A sociopath is perfectly happy to have you violently aggressed against for disagreeing with him or her. They're not comfortable to have those conversations. They're not fun. But that's what it means to put principle above comfort. Now, if we put principle above comfort, then we, I think, gain the moral right to lecture others about putting principle above comfort. Because that's what we're doing when we say reduce the size and power of the state. People who got their guaranteed incomes from the state, they can't be fired from welfare or from government employment. Teachers get summers off, great pensions, health care tenure, job security, you name it. The pay and benefits in the government is about a third higher than the private sector, not to mention the astounding levels of job security and the fact that you don't have to spend your downtime learning new technologies if you're in uh, IT or other places. So we're saying to people, you all got to get really uncomfortable 
for the sake of principle, but it's worth it. Okay, so why would people take us seriously? Why would people say, like, there's, there's nothing more discrediting to an argument than, a moral argument, than to be hypocritical. Because then you're using morality. I'm not talking about you, the person I'm talking to, but you're using morality as a way of seeing, feeling superior and lecturing people and so on, but you're not actually willing to do the things that your morality requires. You know, I mean, uh, Socrates uh, went to his uh, death for the principles that he, he claimed. And so did Jesus. And we remember them. Now, to be fair, we also remember Aristotle, who also fled, saying he was not going to allow Athens to sin against philosophy twice, but still lived with great principle. Uh, Martin Luther, a uh, person who lived with great uh, principle. Whether you, you know, agree or not, right, they're, they're still willing to make sacrifices for the sake of principle. So libertarians are out there in the world saying to everyone, you've got to make all these sacrifices for the sake of principle. Okay, so I'm like, okay, let, let's, let's give this a shot. Let's see if libertarians are serious about this. It's very easy to ask other people to make sacrifices, <laughs> right? I mean, isn't that, you know, this is what the government says, you know, we're all in this pandemic together, says the government officials, who then go to a $30,000 a dinner plate charity thing where they don't bother wearing masks. <laughs> Right? So they're all, we're all in this together. And then, right? So it's very easy to ask other people to sacrifice. It's very boring and very predictable to ask other people to sacrifice. So I put forward this argument to libertarians saying, look, you've got people in your life who support the use of violence against you. If you disagree with them, they support the government grabbing you with guns and throwing you in jail where, you know, it's, it's fairly, a fairly high likelihood that you will in fact be raped. So kidnapped, imprisoned, and most likely raped, or at least certainly possibly raped, for just disagreeing. Now, if there was someone in your life who said, yeah, no, I totally support you being kidnapped and imprisoned and probably raped if you disagree with me, you would consider that person to be a complete psycho. And so I said to libertarians, make this case. And, and it, is an, it is an ironclad case. It is an airtight case. Now. I said, be patient, you know, people, it takes a little while to unplug them from the matrix, the propaganda takes a little while to unravel, could take a couple of weeks, maybe even a month or two, but at some point, you've made the case. And you've given the person time to acclimatize and time to adapt to time to adjust. But at some point, you know, if, if you're serious about Judaism, you, you're not friends with a Nazi, I guess, and vice versa, right? So I said to libertarians, you've got to put principle above comfort. Take your idea seriously. Now, leftists do that all the time, right? I mean, if, if, I mean, if you've had leftists in your life and you've talked about the science of IQ, I mean, they'll just they'll cut you off, right? Look at all the people turning on Nicki Minaj just for a relatively mild statement of caution about someone she knew who had a vaccine reaction that was pretty negative. So the leftists do this all the time. If you disagree with them, they will cut you off. They will ostracize you. They will get you deep, not, not just from themselves, but from others, right? Deplatforming, right? So the leftists do this. They take their ideas very seriously. And so my challenge to libertarians was, okay, can you take these ideas 
I'm not like at least half as seriously as the left does, because the left will try and destroy your life if you disagree with them. And I'm not saying that's particularly moral, to put it mildly, but can you at least go to the ostracism side if people are very much devoted to supporting the use of violence against you if you disagree with them? I mean, look look at the leftist uh, activists, look at the people who are writing, look at the people who set up uh, chairs in, in, what was it, Seattle or Portland or whatever. So the left take their ideas very seriously and will attack, ostracize, try and destroy your life if you disagree with them. And so I think that's immoral because it involves lying usually. But if libertarians could at least take their ideas seriously enough to say, look, if you support the use against violence against me, you can't be in my life. So I put that argument forward about 12 years ago, maybe a little longer. I mean, that was sort of my big formal speech that I gave and took questions to the audience and all that kind of stuff. Because saying, okay, well, look, if libertarians don't want to put principle above comfort, then you're not going to succeed as a political movement. You may have, you know, again, little bits here and there, right? But I mean, it's it's sort of like saying to someone, if you want to put comfort above discomfort and you're overweight, you will never lose weight, right? Because anytime you get hungry, which is uncomfortable, you'll just eat to make yourself feel comfortable again, right? So losing weight or exercising, whatever it is, if you're out of shape and fat, means you've got to embrace discomfort for the sake of principle, whatever principle, like losing weight or gaining muscle mass or whatever, right? Now, it may be the case that, oh, I just didn't feel hungry that week, or I got sick, or I got the flu, in which case maybe you dropped a few pounds. And that's sort of the equivalent of, yeah, there's some little victories here and there with libertarianism. And I won't even do the whole thing on peaceful parenting, which is a whole other thing around libertarianism, uh, you know, com commitment to the non-aggression principle. And and so what happened was, when I put this argument forward, saying, look, if you want to lecture people that they have to put principle above comfort, then you have to put principle above comfort first, because nobody's going to listen to you if you're not living your values. Nobody is going to listen to you if you're not living your values. And in fact, you're just discrediting those values, right? So I put this forward because I know what works in the world. I know what works in the world. And I'm sorry if you've fallen asleep by this point, but what do you think happened to me in libertarian circles when I put forward this argument? Which was exactly how libertarianism could have and should have won. Because knowing how intense the communists are and the leftists are about their beliefs and how they will ostracize and destroy people. I wasn't saying destroy anyone, I was just saying, you know, ostracize people who want to use violence against you if you're into the non-aggression principle. What do you think happened to <laughs> I shouldn't laugh, but because, you know, this is facts are in, right? What do you think happened to me in libertarian circles after I put forward this entirely moral and practical and rational argument? I imagine most probably rejected it or took it as not quite as serious as it actually is. Well, they did end up ostracizing people. Well, not people. <laughs> they did end up ostracizing as a whole. Did they ostracize the people who wanted them taken, thrown in a cage, possibly raped? Did they ostracize the people who wanted to use violence against them? I would assume they ostracized you and 
what you yeah, for. Yeah, yeah, right. They ostracized me at a hole, right, and looked at me askance and with discomfort. And you know, uh, there were you know murmurs of that. He, you know, he just wants to destroy families. Maybe some kind of cult leader. <laughs> just kind of stuff, right? Okay, well, and and that's just information, right? You put forward the arguments, and you just accept the information of how people respond to those arguments, right? And there was not a passionate debate about this within libertarianism. And, you know, I still got invited a couple of places here and there. So it's not like it was some, you know, like never speak to him. There wasn't some big phalanx or wall against me. But there was no debate about this uh, within libertarianism. There wasn't this, you know, boy, that's that's pretty intense. But, you know, I mean, if the if the leftists are willing to throw people in gulags, um, maybe we should at least ostracize people who want knowingly want to use violence against us and that, i mean that is obviously <laughs> if you had a friend who would beat you up every time you disagreed with him or would lock you in a cage i mean obviously that wouldn't be a friend right so, so it's a pretty stark moral thing right and that's that's how to win right so uh, i also of course made the case that if you're into the non-aggression principle you should apply it the most consistently to the place where you have the most effect and power, which is in the family, right? So you should not hit your children, should not aggress against your children. One of the very earliest articles I wrote was the case against spanking, which was like A to Z, spanking is a violation of the non-aggression principle because children are not aggressing against you. Then It's not self-defense. It's not like immediate danger. So it's a violation of the non-aggression principle. Now, if, and this was probably 15 years ago, right? So if 15 years ago, libertarians had embraced ostracizing people addicted to violence for political causes, right? Because if somebody wants you put in jail for disagreeing with them about a political mandate, then the, the use of violence to achieve political ends is called terrorism, right? And so if libertarians had embraced the non-aggression principle in the form of anti-spanking, if they had embraced ostracism, which reveals the violence of those uh, around, right? Because the, the violence is all cloaked in propaganda and seemingly reasonable interactions, but it comes down to, uh, you know, a gun to the head at some point, right? That's the state is an agency of force that's been acknowledged since ancient times, and Barack Obama acknowledged it, and George Washington acknowledged it, it's an agency of violence, right? So, you know, if the libertarians had done that, then we would have had a, uh, a fighting chance. And libertarians as a whole and you know, some exceptions I'm, i don't want to paint with too broad a brush here but in general uh, libertarians as a whole uh, did not did not do that and in fact they, they they were happy to ostracize me rather than the people who supported the use of violence against them and that is interesting it's obviously a little sad i mean but you can't make people see the truth, right? You, you, you can't. You simply present them with the truth if they run screaming. I mean, what are you supposed to do? <laughs> Lariat them and tie them down and, and you know, like uh, clockwork orange, uh, poking the guy's eyes open. With, like, you can't. You can't do that, right? That's the violation of the non-aggression principle anyway. So uh, libertarians like doing the political action stuff because there's no personal confrontations involved. It's, just, it's like a hobby. And it makes you feel like you're doing something. But it's not. It's not serious. If you don't do it in your personal life, it's not even remotely serious and nobody will take it seriously. Because people don't judge your ideas. This is the basic reality. People don't have enough philosophy to judge your ideas. All they do is they judge your commitment to your ideas because deep down they know that the most committed will win. 
right? They, they, the average person cannot possibly judge libertarianism versus socialism. There's no capacity. And in fact, given that they're raised in a socialist environment, which is the government schools, right? They're raised in a socialist environment, so they bonded with socialism. And so the average person, and this is like literally 99 people out of 100 or more, the average person has zero capacity to judge free markets versus central planning, property rights versus collectivism. There's no capacity to judge it whatsoever. But they deep down know that the people who are the most committed to their ideas always win in history. And it's not even a close second. The people most committed to their own ideas always win throughout human history. So when they don't want to bother evaluating the content of anyone's ideas, all they do is they look at their commitment to those ideas. And in that commitment to those ideas, they see the future. Now, if they commit to libertarianism and socialism or communism wins, then they're going to come to a very bad pass, right? Because uh, free, free, freedom lovers don't tend to do very well in the old gulags, right? So, so what they do is they look at the two groups and they say, okay, who's really serious about what they believe? Because if they're really serious about what they believe, then that group will win. So group A, group B, right? Group A is 10 times more serious and committed to their ideas than group B. Well, then group A will win, which means you really don't want to be part of group B if they're in opposition because you, you come to a very bad pass after that, right? And this is why I said all this to libertarians, because I know what wins. I know what works. And if the communists and the leftists and the socialists will try to destroy your life, physically attack you and so on if you contradict them, but libertarians will just hang out with people who directly want the use of force used against them for disagreeing with them, then the libertarians will lose and the leftists will win. In which case, nobody's going to take libertarianism seriously. In fact, they're going to avoid it. They're going to avoid it. Because to be on the libertarian camp, if the leftists win, is to be uh, in, a bad, in a bad, very bad situation. Right? Now that's, you know, study of history, my own life, integrity, and that's just, that's what you need to do to, to even have a fighting chance. Doesn't mean you'll win, but at least you puts you in the ring. It means you have a fighting chance. Now, I won't even get into the whole UPB discussion, universally preferable behavior. I gave the ironclad proof of libertarian ethics, and I remember presenting it out in Vancouver. Walter Block was in the audience. I wrote countless articles. I, I wrote, I did PowerPoint presentations. I debated it ad infinitum, and uh, nobody took up the mantle. And so if you give people the practical way to win and you give them all the theoretical underpinnings to assure them that they are in the right, and they ostracize you as a whole, then they're not going to win. Again, there may be little victories here and there, and I don't want to say that you know the, the gun thing you were talking about is just like a tiny little thing, but as far as the overall pattern goes, and uh, now, you know, now it's probably uh, too late, right? And now, maybe, you know, 10, 15 years ago, but now it's, it's really probably, uh, probably too late. And uh, now, in which case, the libertarians are probably not going to want to alienate those around them because they'll probably need them for whatever social trials are to come. You may need more of a tribe or a community or whatever, but 
yeah, the leftists, um, they're just very serious about it. And they will, they will mess you up if you disagree with them. And uh, libertarians is like, it's, it's a big tent that just collapses in on itself. And the, the small focus group uh, grows to a large political group and take the prize. So anyway, that's sort of a, sorry for the long bit there. That's a big thing about what I saw and what I observed. And I was, you know, I mean, I had some, I was one of the more successful people coming into uh, libertarianism in that I had been a successful entrepreneur and built uh, companies and, and uh, all of that and from nothing and, and come from a poor background. I had a lot of success and credibility in, in various areas. You know, like I wasn't, you know, some academic who was protected by the state or someone with a government license, like a lawyer or whatever, allows them to print money and so on. I had a, I think a fair, I had actually been in the free market, <laughs> actually built a company, had been in the free market and knew a lot about it from that standpoint. And because I was, because I was very interested in selling and did a lot of sales. I remember in one, uh, one five month period, I closed uh, over a million dollars in, in sales. Right. And, and that was a very big deal for us as a smaller company. And I, I, one of the ideas that came to me, because I was visiting a car manufacturer, an auto manufacturer, I, it doesn't really matter, let's just say it was Ford, right? And as you can imagine, you go to the Ford Motor Company, and you've got lots of Ford employees. What are the cars in the parking lot? What kind are they? I guess I'll answer for you. <laughs> They're Ford cars, right? You can't show up as a Ford employee, particularly if you're a manager. You can't show up as a Ford employee in a Volvo or a Lexus or whatever it is, right? You, right? Because if, if you want to... I mean, can you imagine being a Ford salesman and showing up in a Volvo to make a sale and saying, well, Ford, Ford are the best cars, man. I mean, you'd get laughed out of the place and you'd get fired the next day. Like, because what kind of idiot shows up to sell a Ford car in a Volvo? In other words, if you're not willing to, <laughs> to do it yourself, why would you want to sell it to others? And that's just sort of a basic thing, right? That's just a basic thing about, about sales. And in fact, some of the car manufacturers will give their employees cars. Oh, I remember I was also at a gym once. Um, uh, I just grabbed some T-shirt, went to work out. I was at a gym, and it was actually an ad for another gym. So the gym owner, it was like an ad on my shirt for another gym. I just didn't realize it. And the owner was like, hey, man, here's a free shirt. <laughs> don't, don't wear somebody else's gym logo on your shirt, right? Here's, he gave me a free shirt, asked me to change. I'm like, you know what? You're totally right. I, I, you know, obviously, right? I'm not going to be working out. Now, imagine if the guy who owned the gym was in some other gym shirt. That would be weird, right? And of course, you know, the guys who own the gym tend to be pretty fit and they tend to work out at their own gyms. Anyway, this is all pretty, pretty obvious stuff. But that's sort of my sort of major issue with libertarians. It's like, okay, we have these ideas. These ideas have particular consequences. And if we shy away from the consequences of those ideas, because it might cause us some discomfort or alienation in our relationships or what we think of as relationships, they're not really relationships if they want the use of force against you. So if we don't want the negative consequences of our own actions, when those negative consequences are merely emotional, how on earth can we demand other people 
give up their jobs, their incomes, their health care, their security, their welfare, their military industrial complex, billions and billions and billions of dollars when we don't even want to have a frank conversation with our brother-in-law who wants to raise our taxes. We won't have those difficult conversations, but everyone else out there, you know what you should do? You should give up your $150,000 a year job. You should give off your three months. You should give up your three months off in the summer and your free health care and your pensions. And you should give up all of these things, but we're not going to have any challenging conversations with people around us. And that's when you know um, it's not going to win because everybody looks at that and they say, well, th th these guys on the left, man, they're committed. These guys on the right or these guys who are small government, they're and just mostly talking and people there the average person is like like a mammal at the foot of battling dinosaurs they don't have any way to analyze or deconstruct the arguments that are being put forward all they're doing is scanning for dedication are you dedicated is it important to you do you are you willing to be uncomfortable for the sake of what you believe are you willing to fight for what you believe? And particularly when it comes to morals. All they're doing is scanning to see who's going to win and they'll side with that person or that group or that idea or that ideology. Of course, they have no capacity to evaluate it. They're never trained to evaluate it. They may not have the intellect to evaluate it. But, you know, human beings did not evolve without a very strong sense of who's going to win and siding with that person or at least refraining from fighting, right? Who's going to win? Who's going to win? Who's going to win? And everybody's scanning and saying, well, the libertarians are not going to win. And they won't take 1% of the medicine they demand others take. So no one's going to take that medicine, which means the left is going to win. And because I knew all of this, I didn't know how, what the outcome was going to be. I had my suspicions, but I didn't know what the outcome was going to be. But because I knew all of this, because I had the unique experience of being heavily into sales, and you, you don't show up to sell a Ford driving a Volvo, and you don't demand of other people a hundred times the sacrifice that you're not even willing to take yourself. I mean, you can do anything you want. It's just it'll never work. It's just a bunch of noise and wind and nonsense. So because I knew all of this, and I put forward these arguments very clearly, very consistently, year after year, until nobody wanted to talk to me anymore. And that's, <clears throat> that's fine, too. That's, that's freedom. That's free will. Uh, my, my public life is a fairly small part of my life. Um, I have you know, wonderful relationships in my personal life, which is the majority of what I, uh, uh, what I do. But I put that all that forward because I just... If you have a cure and you don't even offer it, you feel terrible. If you have a cure, you offer it and everybody runs away, at least your conscience is clear. And I'm pretty charismatic. I'm pretty convincing. I'm pretty good with a turn of phrase. And man, I worked my ass off for years to get this idea and this argument across. And why? And even the libertarians were acting as if the left was going to win, which means, of course, the left wins. So yeah, sorry, that's the end of the uh, end of the ramble of the speech or whatever you want to call it. I hope that makes some kind of sense. It makes perfect sense. And honestly, I was really just in, enticed in what you were saying, which is why I wasn't able to uh, get to my mic. Uh, oh, no problem. Ask that question. 
uh, I absolutely just love the way you speak. And like I said, it just enticed me. Um, yeah, it's really interesting. Um, I, I've been a fan of yours for several years and I've heard you talk off and on about um, the libertarians and putting forth these ideas and how you were basically treated because of that. Um, and so it's really interesting, uh, especially now with kind of how some of the, the party itself is actually really split around, um, I guess, more, they get called wokeitarians. Uh, which I think is kind of oh the uh, the left libertarians, right? Yes, uh, yes and no. I I mean, there there's some left leaning libertarians that are uh, not quite woke, um, but yeah, uh, the more left leaning, um, I guess the the ones that follow people like Vermin Supreme, um, and <clears throat> it's creating a lot of um, a I'm lot sorry, of tension. Follow, follow people like who? vermin supreme he was uh a presidential candidate he wears a boot on his head i'm sorry um, was his name vermin supreme vermin supreme that's that's <laughs> so they scorned me yeah and went to a guy yeah. named vermin supreme <laughs> yeah yeah oh, that's delightful that really so, is so it's it's really split uh along the lines of uh like the Cato Institute and the Mises Institute. Um, I, I come from more of the, the Mises side of things. Um, I'm involved in the Mises Caucus and other things like this. And um, just recently, the uh, National Committee um, actually kicked out the secretary um, due to um, unfavorable words. And so they, they took a whole redefining Wait, what do you um, they, they basically redefined the non-aggression principle to include hate speech. And that really drove, um, really? even, yeah, it was, uh, very interesting and it is really set the course for, um, how the party is now behaving. There was a, um, do you know what the, what, what is the argument? Like if you upset people enough that the same as pointing a gun at their head? Pretty much. I mean, I'm sure somebody else would describe it differently, but that's ultimately what it comes down to. Um, it's it's really uh, drove a wedge. Wait, don't, between... don't they, I'm sorry, don't, don't they even remotely understand that that completely destroys their entire position? Um, I don't believe the people that are behind this do. Um, we, no, because we I actually... mean, if, if, you're, if you're on welfare and the libertarians want to end welfare, it's going to be perceived as hate speech. You're going to be taking away the livelihood, taking food out of my children's mouths. It's it's hate speech uh, because you're you're suggesting that I live on on air and water, and uh, therefore anything that is proposed by libertarianism that goes against the immediate economic self-interest of anyone is going to be massively upsetting to them, and therefore they'll have to stop because it's hateful. Exactly, and excellent. That, that's uh, that's really what well, I guess the, they ran away from me, and that's where they ended up. Like, it kind of makes sense, right? A lot of them, yeah. Yeah, and then that's where the Mises Caucus comes in, which is, uh, they, they get called all the typical things, Russian bots, they're racists and Nazis, um, all because they want to return the Libertarian Party to Libertarians. 
And a lot of these people um, that are in these not powerful positions, I mean, being on a, uh, you know, the committee for the libertarians, it, it, you don't have any power, you know, so it, but these positions have definitely attracted these types of people that definitely would have shunned you. Um, and taking the against me argument oh, God, yeah. is Absolutely. just a joke. So it's, it's just really interesting um, to see, you know, it's, especially with your opinion, because I, um, there, there actually was a, a, a takeover, so to speak, of uh, New Hampshire's Libertarian Party. Um, the chair at the time of the National Committee actually basically started a whole new party, um, stole a bunch of information um, and kicked everyone out and said, well, if you want to join the party, you have to sign this thing. And it became a big issue. Um, he was confronted about it and actually resigned. He didn't want to defend himself. Um, and the person who blew the whistle um, was the secretary that they just recently removed. Um, so it's, it's, it's very, very interesting seeing all of this kind of unfold and the people who I would guess, or I, I would say, uh, living more principally or, or principled, sorry, by, um, what they are preaching versus the people who, like you said, don't practice what they preach. Interesting. Interesting. Yeah, I think also, I mean, the one thing that libertarians should have been very much prepared for is that their most effective communicators would be the ones who the most attacked. I think that's kind of foundational. And I think instead they said, you know, people like myself and others, of course, who were the most attacked. Uh, they were, whoa, that kind of discredits them in our eyes, or that's kind of dangerous, or that's kind of bad. It's like, okay, well, but... Of course, they're going to target the fire on the most effective people, right? And so I think there was a sense of like, wow, you know, the the, the, the normie world is really, you know, going to battle against these guys. That's that's pretty bad. I don't want any, any part of that. And look, I can understand that. I really can. But what happens is if people are very good at defending and promoting libertarian values, and then they get attacked and ostracized, not just by the mainstream, but also a little bit by libertarians themselves. Then all that will happen is very good communicators will look and say, well, I don't, I don't want that because the better I am at communicating those ideas, the worse my life becomes. Like, why, why would you want that at all? And so it does prevent other people from moving into the sphere. And I don't know that it's been somebody to replace someone like me. Uh, maybe that has, I don't, because I'm not really in that world anymore. But certainly, you know, I got a, a billion views and downloads and and uh, books and and you name it right and a billion is a lot <laughs> a lot of views and downloads i don't know that there's been like a number two in that way but probably one of the and certainly no one new seems to have come along who's willing to take up that mantle and that's because anybody new uh you know would probably have listened to me and and saw how i've treated and they'd be like okay well i'm not you know i'm not gonna i'm not gonna get involved in that because if i'm as good as steph then i'm just gonna get kind of ostracized and betrayed and and left to fight the battle with the mainstream media alone and all that. And uh, 
Um, and and uh, that's different with the Christians. Uh, the Christians are a whole different group, and I know that there's a lot of overlap, but the Christians uh, have been very staunch and, and stood by me, which is why I think my sympathies generally flowed away from libertarianism and towards Christianity, because, I mean, those guys take their ideas very seriously in a way that libertarians seem to struggle with. And honestly, uh, I'm, I'm not very religious. Um, personally, I was raised re religiously, um, but I, I've definitely been leaning more towards the Christians as well. I, I still wouldn't consider myself very religious, um, but there's, there's something to be said of people who stand by their convictions. Um, and I can at least say, um, I, I'm not sure exactly how much impact I have at the party. Uh, I, I do quit a, quite a bit, although it is not my main focus, um, just a peaceful solution to do something. However, I, I can definitely say that uh, I take a lot of what you have taught me, uh, what I've taken away from your teachings, and I definitely uh, like to promote it in any uh, capacity where somebody would listen to me. So you've at least got one person. Oh, no, and I'm sure. I'm sure there'd be more. But, you know, if you, if you want to do the acid test, right, you just say, hey, let's get Steph to give a speech. At some gathering, or you can obviously be remotely these days or whatever, right? Let's go, Steph. And if there's a, like, oh, you know, that's that's kind of a bridge too far, or you know, that's going to cause get a lot of negative feedback. And it's like, okay, and that's fine. That's totally fine. Um, see, the left embraces actual terrorists, right? Like the the, the weather underground. Like they, a lot of them ended up um, in universities and and teaching and were welcomed. You know, when, when um, Alger Hiss went to jail for perjury for denying he was a communist, you know, when he got out, everyone threw him a big party, invited him up. So these are, these are people actually went to jail. And some for very, very serious and violent offenses. They're just embraced by the left. They're just like, yeah, come on in, man. We love you. You know, you, you sacrifice for the cause. You're heroic, blah, blah, blah. You know, I get called a racist and everyone's like, whoa, <laughs> stay away from that guy. And it's like, okay, well, um, without that, Without that loyalty, you know, people would just be like, okay, so I can go to the left and they'll embrace me even if I end up in prison for violent behaviors, right? Or I can go to the libertarians where if the left calls me a racist, they'll just shun me for the next 50 years. It's like, who, who, you know, again, people have no particular moral compass. Which group do you want to join? Yeah, it's very true. Um, it's, it's absolutely amazing to see somebody um, say that they believe in something and turn tail and do the exact opposite. Uh, I, I've personally never been one to really be upset about that because at least somebody would be able to show their true colors. Um, and my morals will still be intact. So right. I guess I can't and, and of course, too much. Libertarians know, I mean, they know how much the media lies about Ayn Rand, right? They know how much the media lies about capitalism and the free market and private property, and they know how much the media lies about Trump, and they know how much, and then, you know, the media calls me bad names. I'm like, oh, well, we better stay away from that guy. <laughs> Come on, man. Everybody knows this, this pattern. It's all nonsense. Well, you spread extremist content, don't you know? That that was a joke, by the way. It was really bad. Right, right, know, right, <laughs> right. No, no, of course, of course. No, I, I get that. I get that. No, and 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 so I think 
Um, I mean, it's almost like a self-fulfilling prophecy. So if the if the libertarians won't have even one tenth of the commitment of the left, then the libertarians are right to not have it because, well, actually, in a way, see, here's the thing, right? If, I mean, just look at Cambodia, look at the Russia, look at places where the left got its ascendancy, right? What happened? Well, it's pretty bad for people who were oppositional to the left. It's pretty bad indeed. And so for me, I don't, I don't think, I'm not sure that the libertarians know what they're playing with or who they're playing with. But to me, the idea that you'd be anything less than fully committed uh, to, you know, your peaceful, the peaceful sort of transmission of your cause and all of that, the idea that you'd be anything less than fully committed, then don't do it. Don't do it at all. Just join the winning side and live relatively safe. But yeah, if left, if the left gets their way, I mean, look at look at what the U.S. government is doing to these goofy guys in Viking hats and a couple of MAGA grannies wandering around the Capitol. Um, man, I mean, I, I don't know. It's almost like uh, it hurt me <laughs> or something, you know. It's like if you're going to get involved in these anti-leftist causes and then not give it your all, I just I'm not I'm not sure what you're doing. Like I, it just seems to be like that's really the worst of all worlds. I would have to agree. Uh, do something right or not at all is how I was raised. And it yeah, calling <laughs> calling me a racist is not going to save you. <laughs> it's just not going to save you. I got to say, the first time I was called a Nazi, I I kind of felt like I was doing something right to where I was uh, upsetting the right people by spreading the right information. It's at this point, it almost seems like a badge of honor uh, that or getting a video removed off of a social media platform or anything like that. Speaking against power, it, it just seems like, a, like I said, like a badge of honor at this point. Well, yeah, sure. But I mean, it's, you know, it may, it may turn from a badge of honor to a target in, in not too long a time. It is true. It's. Uh, I mean, I, I uh, they do play for keeps, right? They play for keeps. That that is true. Uh, it's definitely something I've learned. Uh, I, I would guess with uh, your treatment after being kicked off YouTube and everything, it's. Uh, it, it's not a game. It's it's very serious. However, it seems. It seems like well, the the truth never stays buried is what I've come to learn. Um, you're, you're still reaching people and still helping people. Um, I, I was very glad. Yeah, but I'm off politics. I'm not yeah. doing that stuff anymore. Uh, I, I don't blame you. That's, it's a very nasty, psychotic world, I would say, in the least. Well, it was a pleasure well, talking you, you to can. you. You know, without allies, you can't you can't do it. You're just like alone. Yeah, a real pleasure to chat with you too. I appreciate the conversation, and um, yes, it's course. stuff I haven't talked about, already thought about that much in a long time. So, I really appreciate you bringing up the topics. It was um, very enjoyable. Of course, and I look forward to talking to you again. And I would like to yield my time for somebody else. All right, thank you, man. Appreciate it. Thanks. If anybody else has a comment or a question, I'm I'm more than happy to hear. Mark, I think you're on. You need to unmute, though.
Oh, hello. Uh, good evening. Um, hello. Hello. Uh, yeah. So I have a topic that's slightly different from the last one, but I, I can bridge it. Um, so uh, you know your family name is uh, Molyneux. Um, so I take it you, you're aware about all being from like uh, Ireland and uh, like Irish sort of Norman connect, the Irish Norman connection. Uh, hello, can you hear me? Uh, I can't hear you, Steph. Sorry, I don't know. Maybe it's the way my phone's sending the sound. Uh, I'm sorry, dude. If you if you want to talk, you can. You, I'm sorry, I don't know if your connection is slow, but if you want to talk, you cannot have these truck size pauses between. It's going to be my words asking. All right. Yes. Hello. Can you hear me? Hello, hello. I know I can hear me because the green button is glowing, so going once. Going twice. All right. We will go to someone else. Um, Roy, I think you're on. You'll need to unmute. Hey, Stefan. How are you? I'm fine. How are you doing? Yeah, I'm doing great. Yeah. Um, just had a couple questions for you. Things that I was chewing on based on what you've been saying lately and um, not coming to clarity anyway. So um, one of the things I was wondering about was you're saying, and, and you said this earlier today, you said there will be, and you correct me if I get, you know, if I get the drift wrong, but you said there will be you know, amid all this and, and this bumpy ride down, um, there are a significant enough of amount of people that are wealthy, that are desperate for freedom, that there will be a jurisdiction, there will be a place in the world where, where they will establish freedoms, um, you know, and then there will be a brain drain in the reverse. People will leave America or wherever it is, and they'll go to this place and now, maybe I'm getting lost in the weeds here by asking how, but I, I tend to think that that step involves political action. And, and this is where I'm, I'm uncertain uh, about your, because you, you say, well, politics, I, I don't want to talk about this. I, you know, this is not a winning strategy that it, I wasn't listened to. I, I gave, you know, the foolproof uh, practical solution through universal ethics to people and they shunned me for this. So I, you know, I'm giving my go around with the things that happen in Australia and, and New Zealand and all this, I've soured on, on commentary on politics. And now I'm wondering how is this freedom zone or whatever it is, how does this come to be? And, and if this is, if this is the thing to look forward to, um, you know, how can we affect that? How can we yeah, oh, no, yeah. no, we can't. I've never said we're going to affect it. No, I've never said we're going to affect it. Oh, okay. So, so we just no, no, we just, just that, wait or? no, we just we just keep, keep your eyes peeled. Oh, someone's going to figure out that there are very smart entrepreneurs who've got crypto, who've got resources, who are just great talents, and and who are just desperate for freedom, and who are looking for a place to land so that they can apply their skills. You know, like. 95% of the economy is run by 5% of the people. And I'm not kidding about that. 
95% of our entire economy is run by like five people. And that's going to change going forward. Like we're, I've not really talked about this much, but it's worth mentioning here in context. We are, you know, we are on the verge of this robot revolution that is, I think, kind of intertwined in what's going on these days mm -hmm. in the world, right? Right. And so this robot revolution uh, means that we, we don't need much population to have great wealth anymore. And I simply, you know, say this from an economic standpoint, you know, 40% of people's jobs could be gone in the next 10 years, could be higher, could oh, yeah. be shorter. For sure. So we have, we have a huge reality. So right now, 95% of the economy is run by like 5% of the people in terms of creativity and entrepreneurship and intelligence and, and skill and, and all of that. And that's going to change to like 99% of the economy is going to be run by like 1% of the people. And by run, I don't mean like they're in charge. I just mean that the, the wealth that is generated, the value that is generated. Pareto principle, right? Pareto principle, right? I mean, you know this. If there's a million people in the economy, half the value is produced by a thousand of those people. Right. Now, with robots, that ratio is going to change even more. Hmm. And we have the great problem. And the great problem is what the heck are people going to do when they can be replaced by robots? Where are they? I mean, this is the Tucker Carlson thing about um, self-driving trucks, Truckers. where he's like, oh, yes, God, the first thing I would do is ban self-driving trucks, right? right? Because it would be a complete disaster for large sections of the lower middle class if, if self-driving trucks became like a thing. It would be a massive disaster. And... It's a, I mean, nobody's really talking about what, what, what is everyone going to do when you have robot waiters, robot cooks, robot, robots running robots on assembly lines, when you have self, when you have robots picking fruit and vegetables, you know, you can get robots to pick grapes and strawberries and all kinds of stuff now. And what on earth are people going to do who, through no fault of their own, aren't very smart? And I, you know, I, I, it always sounds like a put down when I say, you know, not very smart. I don't mean it that way at all. It's nobody's fault. Well, government debt selected for them. Well, this is why UBI is being pushed, right? Right. And this is huge. You know, I mean, uh, th th there's more sinister elements of the Internet that are like, because the robot revolution is coming, we're having depopulation through vaccines. You know, I mean, that's the really wild area. I don't follow that or accept that but i know that there's certain theories out there like that. why don't you accept it i don't i don't mean to confront you i'm just i'm very curious like no, why don't you fine, accept yeah. this i mean i see these boston dynamics robots and uh it's not a hop skip and a jump stefan to say well these things are going to be busting down doors uh you know in the not too near future and you don't want to get caught on the wrong side of that i, I don't see how that's wild or you know, I now I see the, the I see the counterpoint that well, if that's happening, then there are robots that can be made, uh, you know, programmed to mitigate these regime bots or whatever. But um, oh, they, no, no. Uh, but the first, uh, no, hang on, no. The, the first thing the right, governments will do is make sure that robotics manufacturers are heavily licensed by the government, so that there would only be like underground robots or black market robots. So it would be they would kill that industry that that would compete with them, but. Um, right. No, it's, I, I, look, I mean, the depopulation agenda and so on, um, I would just like to see more evidence than, you know, some stuff that's taken half out of context in a TED talk. That's, I mean, I, that's extraordinary claims require extraordinary 
evidence and you know white papers and and stuff and i, I don't want to get into that debate that's all right right now i just want to talk okay, as sure, a whole yeah, absolutely. yeah because like you and i don't have access to the information that would prove or disprove that so uh it would be largely theoretical but what i will say is that we just have this this huge issue of like we're on the we're on the eve of the biggest change since the end of slavery biggest change yeah. in human history since the end of slavery and really there's there's been three big ones right the first is hunter gatherer to agriculture right that's that's a huge one really the basis of civilization and then you could sort of you know machinery capital formation and so on 19th century but that all came out of the end of slavery i view the the, the industrial revolution was merely an effect of the end of slavery so we got we got the agricultural revolution like 10,000 years ago which gave us enough calories that we could actually have something other than hunting and surviving forever, which gave rise to written language and culture and art and all that kind of stuff, right? So you got you got the three biggies. You got agricultural revolution, end of slavery, robots. And each of them involve a re massive reduction in necessary labor. I mean, you know, hunter-gatherer societies, it's like, you know how it works. It's like, I need 2,500 calories a day. If I get 2,501, I'm happy. If I get 2,499, <laughs> I will die. You know, like that, that was the thin edge of the razor, right? Which is why those populations never particularly grew. Infant mortality was crazy high. And, and again, you, you catch the deer and you eat. You don't catch the deer and you have that much less energy to hunt next time. And it's often a death spiral, literally a death spiral. So agricultural revolution is like, massive reduction in the effort to calories required and a massive increase in the predictability of your food supply, right? And of course, with agriculture comes property rights and the beginnings of the Pareto principle. So the amount of labor required to reduce food, to produce food, sorry, went down enormously with the agricultural revolution now. With the end of slavery, the amount of labor required to produce food and just about everything else went down enormously because as soon as end slavery, you start to get labor-saving devices, capital investments in machinery that eliminate the need for labor because labor has gone from an asset to a cost. Mm -hmm. I, I, you never, if you if you bought slaves to pick your cotton, you you know to to thresh your wheat or whatever, you don't invest in a combine harvester that does it automatically because that lowers the value of your slaves, right? Right. It would be like investing in, in horse and buggy and cars simultaneously. Like it, it, It's a zero-sum game. In fact, a negative-sum game, one to the other. So agricultural revolution, labor required went down massively. End of slavery, labor required went down massively. And robots, what happens? Labor goes down massively. Yeah. Requirements for labor. I mean, I... I it's, it's, it's hard for us to comprehend because we've not actually lived through this kind of stuff. I mean, we, we have the internet revolution and so on, which has been big. It's been big for sure. But we have a massive population at a time when the requirements for labor are going to crash. What's the plan? <laughs> I don't know. I don't know what the plan is. I, don't, I mean, I doubt there is a plan uh, other than yeah. maybe UBI. Now, UBI, see, here's the thing. In a, in a free society, UBI could be totally fine. 
like if we're allowed to talk about IQ, right? Which it's the big, it's the big question, right? If we're allowed to talk about IQ, we say, look, you, you don't go to someone who's five foot two and say, I can't believe you're so freaking lazy. You can't even be bothered to be a basketball star. Right? Cool. No, nobody comes to me. Nobody comes to me and says, Steph, how come you're not a hair model? <laughs> right? Because, you know, I genetically lost hair and somebody happens to be genetically short or whatever it is, right? Or, or to put it conversely, we don't go to a guy who's six foot six and say, why the hell didn't you ever become a jockey? I mean, I knew a woman who loved riding horses and when I was younger and, and I said, did you ever think of being a jockey? She's like, I'm way too tall. I'm like, you're like average height for a woman. And she's like, yeah, so I'd have to weigh like 90 pounds or 85 pounds to be a jockey, which means I would be starving and I would like take decades of my lifespan or something, right? So you don't look to someone of normal height or above average height and say, why the hell? You're too lazy to be a jockey. Like, we, we understand those limitations. We don't look at uh, fat women and say, how come you're not a bikini model? Well, maybe that's not the case anymore, but you know what I'm talking about, right? Mm -hmm. So we don't look at people who, through no fault of their own, have limitations that preclude them from certain professions. We don't look at those people as wrong or immoral or bad or lazy or anything like that. Uh, Frank talk about IQ brings an enormous amount of compassion. It's not people's fault that they happen to be on the lower left side of the IQ spectrum. Not their fault. And we should have compassion for their limitations. In the same way, you know, it would be asking a lot, but very intelligent people, we should have compassion for their limitations as well. Because very intelligent people can't really do the lower rent jobs because we go kind of insane from boredom. I remember listening many years ago to a guy who went to work at Walmart to sort of do research on what it was like to work at Walmart. And he said, you know, like, oh, they have these people, they're perfectly aware of their options and they do this and they do that. They take their training and so on. And he's like, like, I just, you know, I had to quit after two weeks because I just, I couldn't take the boredom. And mm -hmm. yes, uh, the way to drive a smart person insane is have them do in general. No, and when they're young, it's fine and all that. I did the low rent jobs for years when I was younger, but, you know, you do kind of have to, get something that's appropriate. You know, you, you don't put Freddie Mercury in the back of the choir, you know, <laughs> Just do things that are kind of appropriate to to your your skills or all that, right? So we all have our limitations. The smart people have their limitations and the less smart people have their limitations and we should be compassionate and, and kind and gentle and understanding and reasonable because no one is to blame in general. I mean, there's wisdom and, you know, there's things you can do and still 20% of intelligence is, is um, uh, appears to be malleable, which is actually quite a lot. You know, it's just 20 points. The difference between 80 and 120 or even 90 and 110 is the difference between being a waiter and, and uh, maybe doing a, uh, an undergraduate degree. That's right? a big, big difference, right? So, I mean, I'd be fine with you. In a free society, let's say we got a lot of people who are being replaced by robots and they're not smart enough to be trained in other things or you know, because the robots by definition are replacing all of the less brilliant jobs, right? Or less smart jobs. Mm -hmm. So I'm like, let's help them because the robots are going to generate so much wealth for us because they're tireless. They don't get sick. They, you know, they don't, uh, don't get divorced and can't concentrate. Like, you know, I mean, obviously they need repairs and all that, but the robots are going to generate so much wealth for us that I, for one, Let's say that we get four times our wealth because of robots, right? Easily possible. Easily possible. 
I mean, if you look at agriculture, we got a 30-fold improvement in productivity in a very short, like 30 times, not 30%, 30 times. So let's say that robots, let's just be conservative. They just give us four times the wealth, right? Robots give us four times the wealth. Would you be willing to give 25% of that wealth for the sake of taking care of people who through no fault of their own got displaced by machines? Of course, you, I mean, of course you would. Of course I would, because, you know, we're still three times wealthier, right? And, and yeah. they get their full income that they have now. And I, I mean, I think that would be a, a humane and, and positive and practical way uh, to deal with it. And that's what the free market would do. Right. Um, well, who's going to own the robots? Right. <laughs> well, I just, you know, who's going to own the robots? Uh, that's the other, that's well, no, another free consideration. Market, right? I mean, the, the people who were, I mean, that's the Pareto principle at work again, right? So the people who would be best able to deploy those robots for the sake of uh, productivity would be the ones ending up with the most robots. And that's, right. you know, so, and we would probably end up with 10 times the wealth because of the robots, right? So, you know, your $50,000 a year would become $500,000 a year in a free market and even some increase. And so let's say you end up with 10 times the wealth, five times the wealth or whatever. Okay, so let's say somebody needs $50,000 a year to live, but because of robots, the average salary goes from 50,000 to 250,000. Now, fewer people are earning it, I get all of that. Would you be willing to give $40,000? Because, of course, because things would be more efficient, everything would cost less because you wouldn't have all the labor costs. So you wouldn't need to give as much money now as now in the future because the, the price of a house built by robots would be like one-fifth the price of a house built by people. The price of a, um, a piece of clothing assembled and delivered by robots would be like one-fifth the price of the clothing now, right? So you wouldn't need to give people that much money. The, the, the price of, of food that was grown and harvested and delivered by robots would be like one-fifth or one-tenth the price of food now. So you wouldn't need mm. to give people too much money in order for them to have a decent standard of living. The price of robot doctors, <laughs> whatever it would be, I don't know how, how that would play out, but you wouldn't need to give them that much money because everything would be so much cheaper. We'd have way more money. Everything would be so much cheaper. We could help out. The people who got displaced and and i think most people would and i think but 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 to do that we would have to have a compassionate discussion about iq because otherwise you just get stupid things like you know that learn to code thing right it's like no coding coding is tough man coding is a high iq occupation i'm not just talking like html markup like but real coding i mean i did heavy duty coding for many years and the Pareto principle is totally at work there i mean the smartest coders are 20 to 30 times more productive than the average coder and average right. coders are high IQ to begin with. So you can't just take a truck driver and say, learn to code. I mean, it's it's not the average, right? On average, it's just not going to be. It's, it's like it's like me saying to everyone, hey, man, just just go create a philosophy podcast. And, and find a way to make a living off that. I mean, that's not yeah. a reasonable thing to say to people at all. Well, can I run this by you, Stefan? If, if yeah. robotics, I was, so it sounds to me, I mean, you know, I'm not trying to be facetious when I say this. It sounds to me that robotics are an inevitability. They're a logical inevitability. Now, I look at I look at the environment that was created politically um, after the fact of centralized currency, fiat currency, the Fed, so on and so forth. And and I look at a lot of what you say about well, you know, I was burned, I was um, pushed aside, uh, I was censored and this and that. 
and I say, well, well, isn't that like downstream from fiat? I mean, that, that people in this environment that fiat has created politically, um, isn't, doesn't that just make sense that people spurned you? And, and so maybe I'm, sorry, you, I'm not sure what your actual question is to you. Well, sure, sure. Well, okay. So that partly that's the question. Well, isn't that, isn't that just then don't we assume that then that you would be spurned in this kind of environment, this environment of incentives, incentives no, hang on, sorry. by fiat. You're, you're putting, hang on. You're putting the spurned and the deplatformed together. I wasn't deplatformed by libertarians, obviously, right? And so the spurned is the people who claim to share my values, who didn't like the practical implementation that was necessary to have any chance of success. Oh, right, right. You're right. right. So absolutely. That's, that's spurning. The deplatforming is a totally separate issue, right? Those are people who I stood in the way of the political power that they wished to achieve, and therefore I had to be removed. Right. So we'll stick with the deplatforming, and I, and I think that's a good clarification. Is it not then a... I mean, doesn't it just make sense? I don't, I don't know how else to say it, but the, in the environment that's created, and as far as, as long as we are in the, in the cycle of money, wouldn't it make sense that the hammer would fall down on you? And, and, yes. and, the, and if we cycle up from fiat, I mean, what is robotics an inevitability? And then are we sort of, are we just kind of hanging? Are we hanging out till the, ro till the robots show up? I mean, what, you know, what, what are we... I mean, you know, I, I'm sort of speaking in generalities. I'm having a hard time saying it exactly, but but you s sort of took it as you took philosophy as far as it would go in this environment. Now, I think money's going to upcycle. It's going to go to more efficient hands, and I do tend to think that DeFi is a big part of that. I do tend to think that robotics is a big part of that. So, well, and, yes, and and robotics and and UBI is a far more civilized thing than the solution to massively increased productivity in the 19th century right so the the solution to massively to, to needing fewer people particularly dumber people right that the solution in the 19th century or the early 20th century was world war one where they developed an iq test and they put the dumbest people at the front and kept the smartest people in the back because they had enough machines to replace the dummies so to speak or the less intelligent they had enough machines to replace them didn't need them anymore so you, got, mm. you had a war right so you think now, so, these goals so now we've got no? yeah now we've got another another thing which is you know we need fewer people and you know i hope that is war isn't going to be the solution to that uh, and i doubt it will be because of weapons of mass destruction you can't just throw the front is everywhere now you can't just throw people on the front and say well we're just going to kill those people so we'll see but um a, more, a far more civilized thing is to say look um Yes, robotics are an inevitability, which means that because mm. you're not that smart, and again, I, I, it always sounds like such an insult, but just think of it like you're not that tall. It's, it's not an insult because intelligence is largely unchosen. And yeah. uh, obviously, wisdom matters more than intelligence for happiness, and, and you know, people who aren't as smart can sometimes be a lot wiser than people who can talk themselves in and out of anything because of their advanced self-castrating verbal adroitness. But uh, it's... Uh, yeah, we, we, you know, I'm sorry that the economy doesn't need you at the moment. And there's no situation upon which the economy will need you. And so, um, yes, I think charity is perfectly appropriate for that sort of situation. And 
Mm. But, but we, we, we have this excess population compared to the economic need. And it's, you know, unfortunately, we, we've, you know, we've, we've had a social system where we trained people to be inactive for generations now. And um, how, how are we going to deal with, with a declining need for less skilled people? Uh, it's uh, again, no, no one's really talking about it because it's, it's kind of chilling, right? But I mean, the, the, yeah, we know the state's going to deal with it. Coming up. I mean, we, we right. know pretty clearly how the state's going to deal with it. Oh, now, we? well, war, right? And and uh, deep, you no, said, no, you no, said, no, uh, no, war, hold on, let me finish. On just one yeah, second. Sorry, go ahead. Uh, you said a week and a half ago or two weeks ago, you said, um, you, and you were talking about the fall of Rome, you said, uh, de depopulation uh, policy, basically. Wait, the, the state, the state. You said that when there's when the debt can't be paid off, um, then population control measures are put in place. Well, I don't think I said population control measures. I mean, this is not even my theory, but the the end result of a fiscal improvidence is war. Because when you can't pay off your debts um, and you can't keep your promises to the people you promised, you just go to war to silence dissent. Yeah. So the so the so maybe like some kind of war on the on, you know, like some something that we see in Australia or something like this, currently. Well, um, that's not. A, I don't. Um, I don't see that as a depopulation agenda. I mean, they're not killing people. Hmm. It's, that's interesting. So. Hmm. Um, now, now you mentioned uh, gulags and and camps and this sort of thing. Is that um, is that not part of what the state is potentially going to do in the face of uh, not being able to pay its debts and you well, know this okay, so, money I mean, cycle coming? That's that's a that's a so the, 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 that's a different matter. So with regards to sort of <laughs> the left, I'm simply talking about the economics, regardless of whatever political faction is in control, the economics remain the same. That the growth in robotics has, has over the last, really over the last five or 10 years and what's projected over the next five or 10 years is truly staggering. It's unbelievable what these things, I mean, they can break dance, they can, you know, like just about anything. And yeah. that, and, and not to mention, of course, self-flying planes, self-driving cars, self-driving boats and and cruise liners and and self-made like robots that maintain themselves and i mean it's just incredible it's just incredible and that so so the, the the gulags that's sort of political repression based upon what the left and the right does uh when the streams of left and right get into power right with the fascism or or or, or communism so that that's a separate matter uh, that occurs regardless right i mean if the left gets heavily into power then they'll they'll do all of that stuff for sure but the issue of robotics and the left of 90 bell curve that is regardless of whatever happens in terms of politics that's something which we're going to deal with and of course a lot of companies would say a lot of countries would say well just ban the robotics it's like well but the first mm. country that doesn't and that will be china right the first country that doesn't ban the robotics will be <laughs> yeah. the one that ends up, uh, running the world right so it's yeah, like, so it's right. like saying, yeah. It's like saying, well, let's just ban navies. It's like, well, if England doesn't, they get an empire. So that's not really much of a solution. Right. Okay. Well, okay. Well, so I have foreboding. Um, and, and I want you to, um, <laughs> well, you just say what you're going to say. Um, 
I have foreboding when I, you know, I tune in and you're talking about like the trial of Socrates and I'm reading about uh, aerosolized vaccines and that I'm watching these videos um, with these Boston Dynamics robots and uh, and I see these camps popping up in, in rural northern British Columbia, these holding centers and um, and I, I just have a lot of foreboding about this. I, I wonder if you could just speak to this at all and um you know i i I sort of tried to get at it a bit with with you know mentioning the money cycle and and you were so right to mention robotics and and but can you talk a bit more about the bumpy ride can you tell me do you have foreboding as as you look at what's happening politically you know what are considerations that that you think of in this vein and and if you could just speak to this a bit i i certainly would appreciate it Well, I mean, I don't really watch politics anymore. It's not its not really what I do. I mean, for me, you know, have, have a good community, have some resources, don't spend money, try and get out of debt. Maybe don't live right in the middle of a city, you know, <laughs> lots of things like that. I think they're reasonably wise things to do. But um, uh, I would say, uh, yeah, up your human capital, uh, stay mobile, uh, and, uh, uh, you know, stay away from big population centers. And, you know, maybe a little bit of food in the basement not, might not be the worst thing in the world. But you know, as far as foreboding goes, uh, I'm out of the machinery, right? I'm I'm not in that uh, vein anymore. I'm not uh, doing or seeking to affect politics or doing political analysis or anything like that because uh, the the machinery is just doing its thing now, right? And the thought has been largely abandoned uh, in the West, and uh, so yes. I think it's a, a time for sort of keeping your wits about you and and. Um, staying alert and uh, staying in a good community, and uh, I think just being aware that that's where where things are. Yeah, as far as you know, what's going to happen in terms of politics, uh, I try I try not to focus too much on things that I have decided not to change. Or, or um, it's like it's like worrying about the weight of someone in India. It's like I don't even know who that is, and right. you affect it. So, and you say, ah, oh, yeah, politics has a big effect on you and so on. It's like yes. Absolutely, absolutely, and so does so does the sun in terms of a sunburn. So I'll just put on some sunscreen. I'm going to try and talk the sun out, being radioactive, so to speak. Right. Yeah, I think I think that's a good sober take. Um, well, I, I certainly appreciate you addressing that. I I think okay. One more thing, I you know, and I can just sort of leave it at this or whatever, but, you know, you're very big on Bitcoin and thank you. Thank you, Stefan. Um, I, you know, I got in at a good time and, and you have been sent Bitcoin from me and, and from my loved ones, certainly over the years. Uh, how does this, you said this could be, and you said, you know, very optimistically, because uh, this was maybe a couple months ago, you said, and there's the chance that Bitcoin comes and sort of lifts all ships in the harbor. You said something to this effect, and I'm just hoping you can speak on that a little bit because I do, I do fixate. You know, I've got a. I don't know, man. I'm, hang on, expand. Hang on, expand upon your vague quote. It's not much of a, of a lifting. <laughs> I don't know the context or you know. You said something to do with weather. Can you expand on that? It's like, uh, is it rain? <laughs> I can really. Right. What do you mean? 
My world, for, you know, I, I'm uh, haven't talked to a lot of people in 2021. I've been <laughs> been hanging out on the farm, you know, relaxing. So yes, forgive me. I'm I'm not as um, sharp as I have been in the past. But um, you, yeah, you you okay? So you've essentially you've you've advocated a lot for Bitcoin. I think you're saying it's part of the money cycle um, that fiat's falling away. That uh, money is going to concentrate itself in more efficient hands. This transfer of wealth is going to happen through Bitcoin. Uh, at least we hope so. And and that this could be something that really takes off in the, in the near to midterm. Um, I, I'm wondering, do you still view it this way? And, or, you know, are you? Oh yeah. No, without, okay. uh, without Bitcoin, I, you know, without Bitcoin, it'd be tough to get out of bed in the morning. I'm not kidding about that. Right. Without Bitcoin, it would be tough to get out of bed in the morning because this is this is the first time we've had a Titanic with an actual lifeboat. Well, every other time in human history, then you know, fiat currency, the degradation and bastardization of the currency just takes down everyone with them. And what the hell do you do? The only chance that you have is to go and figure out how to live in the mountains and grow food at a tree bark or whatever, right? That's all mm. you got. That's all you got. Now, whew. Who would have guessed, right? All that worry, all that concern, all that fear. Who would have guessed? Boing! Up comes Bitcoin. And you have a piece of what's next before what's, what what's is is even gone. It's incredible. Not only is there a lifeboat, but there was a lifeboat that gets you so far away from the sinking ship, you don't get any backswill, any undercurrent. You may not even hear the screams or see what goes down. That was wow. an unbelievable thing. I mean, they just unveiled uh, the first statue to Satoshi in uh, Hungary, I think it was, which I think we'll be very close to adopting soon. I know Russia's not quite there yet, but um, uh, but no, I mean, it's uh, this is the new thing. And this is, without without Bitcoin, I mean, God, <laughs> I don't know what, I, honestly, I don't know. I don't know what my life, would, my mental state would be like. I have no idea. I have mm. no idea. But... That is, uh, I mean, that's why like 11 years ago, I'm like, this is the thing. Oh, yeah. Thing. Yeah. It was clear as day back then. I mean, I'm, I'm just yeah. so surprised that so many people haven't um, jumped in on it. Still. Yeah. Yeah. And, and of course, those people are, you know, it's really tough. It's really tough. It's really tough. And so, yeah, I, uh, yeah, with, with Bitcoin, yeah, with Bitcoin, all things are possible. With Bitcoin, the, Transition is something that goes from a negative to a huge positive. And without that whiplash, I really don't know. Mm. I really don't know what would be going on in my mind, but it would be a very different place to be. Yeah. I'd be of good cheer. For once in history, we are either isolated nor economically doomed when a system begins to plow under. Oh, yes. So true. We're not we're not isolated because yeah, we're not isolated because of the internet and we're not economically doomed because of Bitcoin and that's it. All my wealth <laughs> involves like all my all my functional productivity involves bits and bytes. Like if it's not crypto or podcasts <laughs> on a server or bits flowing over it's all bits and burps and bytes. I'm I'm an avatar of the future. I'm a digital whiplash from a wiser time to come. Yeah, well, I tend to agree. Hmm. Thank you, Stefan. I appreciate. Bitcoin is, and bit sorry. Last thing I'll say: a Bitcoin yeah. is 
it's it's the end of of history as we know it because an economy that runs off bitcoin you cannot have a state in the way that we understand it now you cannot have a state because it can't create money it can't print money let's say that see the, the governments pretend that they provide value is they just borrow right i mean if if i take $50 from you and give you and use that to borrow $500 and then give $500 back to you. Well, I mean, it's called the Ponzi scheme, right? And yeah. the, the only illusion that the government pr creates or provides any value is through debt and money printing mm -hmm. and debt and money printing. Fiat currency cannot function under Bitcoin. They're antonyms. It's not even night and day because they can't coexist. It's vampire and sunlight. Right. When the economy is run, on digital scarcity, right? Because that's the amazing thing about Bitcoin. This is digital, but it's scarce. And digital usually means pretty much infinite, like copy-paste, Bohemian Rhapsody, instead of having to go out and buy an actual LP. And so Bitcoin, as digital scarcity, is going to completely rewrite society from the ground up. Because the government cannot have a monopoly on the creation of currency. It cannot have a monopoly on collateralized intergenerational debt. And so this entire democratized fantasy of infinite resources will return to its European roots and its East Asian roots of scarcity and a long fucking winter. Because that's where the free market comes from. Like All resources are finite. All human desires are infinite. Well, the all resources are finite only comes out of winter cultures. Because summer cultures, you know, like tropics and all that, yeah, there's food everywhere. And you know, Your big problem is disease and all that which you really can't do much about. So Bitcoin is digitized scarcity culture that will rewrite society from the ground up. And you will not have a state in the way that we understand it, if at all. Because when the currency runs off Bitcoin, the government can't pretend to add value by creating money because you can't create money. And so the government will actually have to compete with other agencies because the government seems to provide all of these things like roads and <laughs> healthcare and defense and courts and right but it only does that on the illusion that it's able to create wealth which it can't it can only take wealth and diminish and destroy it so when bitcoin comes along and will slowly replace and and maybe not so slowly it will replace the uh, fiat currency. It's the end of financial sophistry. It's the end of lying to people from governments. It's the end of war, everything potentially. Yeah, it's the end of war. Yeah, I made that argument like eight years ago. Bitcoin marks mm. the end of war. Yeah. And it marks the end of unproductive wars against terrorism and drugs and <laughs> illiteracy. And, and no, no, it, because if the government operates on the blockchain, it's the end of bribery. The government operates on the blockchain, it's the end of imagined value adding. If the government can't collateralize and indebt the next generation to buy votes in the here and now, it's the end of democracy. It's the end of the media. Because the media, Beautiful. all the media does is serve these lies in order to 
I mean, was it Justin Trudeau gave like millions and millions and millions of dollars to the media before this election? It's like, okay, well, that's on the oh, blockchain yeah. and he has to get that money from somewhere and he can't just borrow and print it. It's a whole different thing. It changes everything. I mean, it's it's the biggest one that will ever come, right? That'll be the fourth one, right? We did agriculture, we did end of slavery, we did robotics, and then Bitcoin. Bitcoin is the thing that's, you know, it's worth the... Uh, it's worth everything else that's been done in the realm of philosophy and economics at infinitum. Yeah. With infinitely it's, it's more than anything that's ever been done, including what I do. Well, it's worth holding. And so, so as part of your keeping an eye out and, and a sense, you know, understanding the danger of the situation, I'd imagine you're also keeping an eye out for that place where Bitcoin really takes root, where the people there, um, I don't know, where they enfranchise it legally or they, you know, what is it they do? Um, but I'd imagine that's a part of your reckoning. Well, it's yeah, it's already legal currency in uh, El Salvador. Yeah. And other places will be moving moving that way. So all it would take is one visionary politician to understand that the old way cannot last and the new way will be everything. And whoever gets there first will get 95% of the world's economy fleeing to their land. Yeah. Hey, that's great. I love that, Stefan. Thank you. I think it's true. And, you know, so yeah. I appreciate Gold your time Skulls, so man. much. Gold Skulls is going to be the new Bitcoin society. All right. Thanks, everyone, so much. Such a great pleasure to chat. I'm glad that we had people drop by this afternoon. Thank you, everyone, for such wonderful comments and questions. I really, really appreciate that. And have yourself a delightful afternoon and evening. I will see you um, certainly on Wednesday. I'm sorry I haven't been doing my sort of true news stuff, but I've had a couple other things to do at the moment. I'm sure I will get back into that freedomain.com forward slash donate if you would like to help out. I would really appreciate that. And also, don't forget my free novel. I will keep nagging you until you take it. Um, freedomain.com forward slash almost. All right. Lots of love. Take care. Bye.